0: Hi everybody, this is Jamal speaking, uh, the Buddhist. Um, Just a very quick content warning for this episode. Uh, This following episode you will hear contains discussions of uh, sex and general adult themes. Uh, if you don't want to hear those discussions or you have small children who you would like to not have them hear those discussions, this may not be the episode for you and maybe go and listen to an episode on the noodly appendage or something. Um, but you know, uh, if you're happy with that, please listen on and enjoy. Welcome to a Christian and a Buddhist walk into a bar. My name is Jamal and I'm a Buddhist. My name is Jacob and I am a Christian. How are you going, Jacob? Have you uh, have you been to any bars recently? I've. You know what? It's been like a couple of weeks since
1: yeah. I've been to a bar. Yeah. We were supposed to go to a bar, so I thought. Last week, and then you bailed for an interstate trip. I did, I I bailed on you for an interstate trip. And now I'm
0: shaming you about that on a podcast, I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) No, 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 that's okay. (laughs) Uh, And you know, Jacob, it's okay because I love you anyway. That warms the cockles of my heart, Jamal, I feel so so happy and blissful to hear that. That's good, Um, because this week's uh, episode is about love. Uh, it's probably about a, a slightly different kind of love than the love I have for you, Jacob, but it's about love nonetheless. That also warms the, <laughs> <Yeah. on> my- <laughs> the, the Jacob breathes a sigh of relief. Um, but this is about Buddhism and relationships. Um, so this episode was inspired by a letter we received uh, as part of our uh, listener mailbag um, from Helen, um, who asked about... Uh, Buddhism and what Buddhism says about relationships, um, and we did uh, discuss it a bit in the in the episode, um, but just for a very very brief, uh, less than 140 character summary of the stance of Buddhism and relationships. Uh, essentially, Buddhism says that relationships and partners and children and families are something that is totally fine and important if you are living a lay life. Uh, but probably at some point, if you want to become enlightened, you probably need to let go of some of your attachments to those people. Um, not necessarily let the people go, but um, but just let go of the, the clinging and the, the craving. Just
1: to, to dig into this. I've been looking forward to this since, we, since we discussed it on the <laughs> Take- mailbag. Turkey wanted to
0: beeline for
1: this, this single point. Well, I just, I just noticed that, like, but probably, maybe, if you want to get enlightened, then you can't have them. Isn't the whole, like... Isn't the whole point of Buddhism not that you have to get enlightened. No one's forcing you to get enlightened, but it is the it's the, the claims to be the path to enlightenment and and if you want to get to what Buddhism thinks you should want to get to, then you've got to let those things go. Yes. I'm just trying to push to the nub and, and be generally unhelpful. <laughs> no, no, I, no,
0: that's fine. Um so yes, if you want to get to enlightenment then at some point along that path, you will need to let go of all attachments, which includes your attachments to the important people in your life. And includes your attachment to yourself. Yes, correct. Um, I think probably the core thing that's important to note before we dive into this article is that those attachments are not equal to the people. Buddhism doesn't say don't have these important people in your life. It just says, don't be attached to those people in your life, um, which, you know, is very, very difficult to do. And this is why a lot of people who do dedicate themselves to the Buddhist path, try to live separately from those people or try to um, live a life that isn't involved in lots of things like romantic love and sex and that kind of stuff. Well, you know, for a lot of monastics, they are completely celibate. You know, sex is considered something that's kind of almost too difficult to navigate and also let go of the attachments around it.
1: Which is just really interesting. Sorry, we haven't even got to the article yet. We'll get there. No, we'll um, we'll eventually. But like, because we in in modern Western culture, there's kind of this view. It seems to me, anyway, that you can just you can have sex without attachment, and that like it, it's just a, um, oh, what's the word? Like like it's it's just a, um, instinctual kind of bodily thing that mm. you can. You can get on with if you like, and and it doesn't have huge consequences, or it needn't have new huge consequences, or significant for for you or for them.
0: Yeah, look, I, I think Buddhism might disagree with that idea that you can have sex in a totally unattached way. Um, you know, I think um, it's, I yeah, you know, I, I, there's obviously you can have um, casual sex or sex that you know doesn't necessarily lead to a relationship. But, you know, I think Buddhism would say that, you know, it's not just an emotional attachment that is, you know, that you can be caught up with with sex. It's actually, it's even the physical attachment. It's the desire for sex itself that will drive you to do certain things and behave in certain ways that are unconducive to the enlightened path.
1: I I just, the reason I pick up on that is particularly the, I guess, the emotional attachment side of things is that that's just one of the things that, that, christianity as a well i guess a religion or a a pattern of philosophy and so on um that you know that's one of the things that christianity says and it's one of the things that maybe it's just me but like feels like it's a bit old fuddy-duddy in modern society so it's just it's interesting to hear that buddhism goes yeah, almost impossible to have sex without attachment, guys. Like, well, come on. <laughs> well,
0: but maybe the part of it that isn't so old fuddy duddies in Buddhism is that Buddhism at no point, you know, says to anybody that that's you know that. I, I think the difference is that I think feel like Christianity applies or at least traditional Christianity applies that assessment of sex to everybody, whereas Buddhism just says, oh, no, this only applies to the specific class of people that are wanting to go and be enlightened and become monastics. Well, just. Is-
1: like no, I think Buddhism on on what you're saying applies it to everybody. It just says that well, you don't have any responsibility to do something about that if you don't want to. Yeah, sure, okay, yes, and and, and like I I would say the same thing actually generally about I mean a, any Christian morality in inverted commas to use that broad phrase like my my personal position is that if you're not a Christian, do I think you'd be better off kind of following the, the teachings of Christ and living how kind of God created us to be and all that. Well yes, yes I do, but I don't expect you to think that if you don't know God. Like I yeah. don't expect Christian morality to make sense without Christ. Mm. So I'm not gonna make somebody live in a particular way if if they don't want to. But if you think that following Jesus is important and you think you think that Jesus actually has some relevance to your life, then then there's consequences mm. to that.
0: Yeah, and I will also say that I think this is a particularly Theravadan Buddhist uh, angle on relationships and sex. Um, so uh, you know, I will note that most, if not all of the Mahayanan Buddhist traditions, so the traditions of kind of East Asia and Tibetan and that kind of thing, uh, allow for sex and families and relationships and that kind of stuff in a way that um, the kind of the Theravadan Thai Sri Lankan Uh, burmese buddhism doesn't um you know i think i have heard about you know almost a thing in tibetan buddhism where it's like you you know you need to abstain for a certain point whilst you're developing your wisdom but once you are very wise you can engage with sex and alcohol and things without getting attached to them so therefore you're allowed to do it um you know which but are you going to want to do it Potentially, and potentially, that could also just be a way of justifying uh, the powerful people in communities to uh, to be able to do what they want. <laughs> um, but um, but yes, it's a, it's an interesting point that it, you know I, I just want to note that it's only it's only one side of Buddhism that probably takes that line. Sure. Yeah. Um, but it leads us to the article uh, here, which is called "Buddhism and Relationships: The Four Noble Truths of Love" by Susan Piver. And this is really, I guess, part of a very strong tradition in Buddhism about talking about, uh, on the assumption that you are one of most Buddhists that will uh, engage with the world and will have relationships and that kind of thing. Um, how should you do it? How should you do it in a Buddhist way? And you know, how can you apply Buddhist principles to your lay life um, in a way that um, that is uh, supportive of that, and is supportive of your Buddhist practices. Um, you know, I will say there's a there's a lot of talks that I listen to by monks which talk about sex and relationships and that kind of thing. And you know, they always you know, make crack the same kind of uh, kind of joke at the start of like, oh, well, I'm a monk. What do I know about this? But actually, you know, the, the idea is that that you know Buddhism has a lot of teachings that can be applied everywhere in life. Um, which is you know, which is uh, helpful. So, um, I guess. So we might have gone into this a little bit, Jacob, but I'm interested to know. First off, if, if if I were to tell you, okay, what do you think applying Buddhist principles to relationships would look like? What would you What would you think? I'm I'm genuinely not sure
1: because this is why I like Helen's question so much. Because if if it is important to be non attached, like I think there are some aspects of of non-attachment that can, could be really, really good and, and healthy and helpful in relationships. And I guess I'm probably not thinking of romantic relationships here, but like, a, well, it would apply to romantic relationships as well. But like the, the ability to kind of um, absorb your first reaction to something and not go flying off the handle um, when, when someone's done something that you perceive as, as wrong or unfair or, or whatever it is. Uh, is, is probably going to be a good trait in a relationship and kind of an, an application of non-attachment. But I can also th- th- I mean and this is maybe just where, where I have questions about non-attachment because I can I can also see that going badly wrong um, where where it leads to you not being overly concerned about the other. So so how you walk that tightrope, is a really interesting question for me.
0: Yeah, and I think I think one of the things about Buddhism is, you know, I think we, we talk a lot in this podcast about kind of Buddhist concepts and Buddhist, um, uh, I guess, spiritual and theological kind of frameworks. But um, I think one thing we haven't actually delved too far into, which I think is probably it's a good time to do it, is that Buddhism gives a lot of really specific guidance around this kind of stuff, you know? So when we're talking about that question of how do you take a concept like non-attachment and how do you apply that to your life in such a way that um, you know you can get the, the benefits of it, but not necessarily maybe some of the more negative consequences of it? Yeah, you know, Buddhism Buddhism is quite good at. Numbered lists of ways you can do things that will yeah, So Buddhism
1: support. was made for BuzzFeed journalists, Bu- right? Bu- Buddhism <laughs> was the original clickbait. Yes,
0: um, you know, yeah. click here for the eightfold noble path to enlightenment. Yeah, um, you'll never guess number seven. <laughs> you'll never. You'll, you know, uh, so- somebody somebody followed the four noble truths. You'll never guess what happened next. <laughs> uh, exactly. Um, but so, so, maybe this is a good point to jump straight into the crux of um, of Susan Piver's article here. So you know she has an intro about uh, how she approached this, but essentially, the the core tenets of the article is that there are there's a thing called the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism, and that you can take those Four Noble Truths and apply them to relationships, and you gain a whole bunch of insight and wisdom. And the Four Noble Truths are exactly one of these really clear, clearly articulated. Guidelines for how to do the practice and how to do the steps that you know takes us from the theory and the theology into the practical lived experience. Um, and it's it, it's interesting actually saying this now. We are we're what no, 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 dozens of episodes into this podcast, and I I actually think I have been remiss in um, not making clear the extent to which Buddhism has practical advice on some of this stuff, I've gotten so caught up in the, in the good theological discussions. But yes,
1: and probably helpful for me because then I, I can point out where Christianity has good, helpful, practical advice yes. as well. We listeners might have observed that we both like kind of getting stuck into the academic and the yeah. yeah.
0: But yes, so so yeah, um, be prepared, listeners, for a spate of episodes on the practical <laughs> advice of Buddhism. Um, okay, so the four noble truths. What are they? So the four noble truths are. Um, they're they're kind of the the first things the Buddha articulated once he became enlightened. So he's got a a talk he gave in a place called Deer Park uh, that was uh, when he became enlightened. And these were the kind of the the core truths of the universe that he identified. Uh, The first noble truth is uh, the truth of suffering. So this is that life is suffering. Um, So uh, as put in the article, this does not mean that life sucks. It refers to the fact that everything changes and there's nothing to hold on to, and that's painful. Uh, The second noble truth is the cause of suffering. So that, you know, and this is where we talk about craving and attachment and aversion and that kind of thing. So that what it is that causes this suffering that is inherent in life is trying to hold on anyway. You know, knowing that, that all these things are changing in life, but still trying to hold on to them um the third noble truth is the cessation of suffering and it's just this statement that this this condition this way of being in the world can be alleviated it can be resolved you you don't have to be stuck in this cycle of life being suffering and you're trying to hold on to it so it's more suffering and you you can get out of that and then the fourth noble truth is the path out of suffering um and this is when you get your hidden little um, story within a story, where the fourth—the fourth noble truth is the eightfold noble path that will lead you out of suffering. Uh, and we will hold off on the eightfold noble path because we will get to that in our in our next episode, where uh, where where Susan writes another article about the eightfold noble path out of suffering. We'll, we'll stick with the four noble truths for now. Um, so, how do we apply these four noble truths to love? Um, so Susan came up with these essentially, you know, versions of the four noble truths that are linked to relationships. So number one, relationships are uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of relationship you're in, whether you're been with someone for 30 years, whether you are just about to go on a first date, it's, it's scary. It's uncomfortable. It, it doesn't necessarily always feel really good, but like, that's just the way it is, right? There, there, there's, there's, there's. You're never going to have this sense of stability and that everything is going to be perfectly happy for all points in time. You will always have conflict. You will always have nerves. You will always have various levels of discomfort. And, you know, just due to the changing nature of the way the way that things are, that that relationships are inherently, not always, obviously, but inherently relationships will inevitably involve a level of discomfort, of suffering, of 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 negative feelings um so i mean first reactions jacob first noble truth of love relationships are uncomfortable well of course they are and and so
1: there's a few beefs that i i have here she says relationships are uncomfortable expecting them to be comfortable is what makes them uncomfortable that's uh, the second that um trying to avoid the suffering is actually the suffering um Meeting the discomfort together is love, and then she goes into the the noble eightfold path. But like the the thing I found challenging about this article is that she doesn't, to me, get to the nub of why relationships are uncomfortable and why romantic relationships are can be more uncomfortable and more comfortable all at once than the relationship that you and I have. Jamal with a different kind of love, as you said at the top of the episode. But she does,
0: doesn't she? The, the the second the second noble truth of love being expecting relationships to be uncomfortable is what makes them uncomfortable. Isn't that the core tenet there that she's saying is
1: Well but I I disagree with her actually okay, on so. that. Well and, and like it might be related, but I think there's something there that she hasn't unpacked, which is that inherent in, in any relationship is vulnerability. Mm. And the deeper the relationship, the more intimate the relationship the deeper the vulnerability on both sides right like because you in order to have a deep relationship with somebody else you need to open yourself up to them more and more right like you you have share you share your hopes and fears and your whatever else and so that that means that you're you're putting yourself in a position of vulnerability to the other person which means that you are giving them more capacity to hurt you than they would otherwise have if you just you know nodded at them at the street and just like that that person has a a limited capacity to hurt you emotionally Um, whereas your significant other in whatever way and certainly your children have an enormous capacity to hurt you emotionally Because you, in some ways, you you give yourself to them and they give themselves to you in a deeper way than you do in an ordinary relationship, right?
0: So, yeah, I agree with you and I don't agree with you. So I, I agree with you that fundamentally, for most people, vulnerability is uncomfortable, right? Absolutely. I think we live in a society where vulnerability is rare uh, it's something that we try to avoid, uh, not even society. I think it's just yeah, it, it could be it's said like, to be human nature.
1: I mean, I mean, even on a first date, right? Like yeah. it's it's that question of well, what's this person going to think about me? Am I going to make a good impression? Like,
0: but is, is it, that is it? that
1: not a vulnerability? Like the, the the judgment that that person makes of you matters more than the judgment that somebody else makes of you. I see. I.
0: Yes, but I think it's not just vulnerability, right? So this is the thing. I think, sure, it, 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 more than that, yeah. Yeah, but 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 I think vulnerability is inherent to relationships. Agree with that. Um, I actually think vulnerability doesn't have to be uncomfortable. I think vulnerability can be deeply, deeply comfortable. I, I think, agree. Yeah. I think part of the reason that part of the reason that people in the world like casual sex is because it's a way of being vulnerable with somebody. Uh, with at least ostensibly very few consequences for that vulnerability. Right? Well so
1: it's vulnerable but not too vulnerable. Yes. It's got boundaries,
0: right? Yeah. yeah. Um but I, I guess for me I think I I think she Yeah, you know, I'm not a hundred percent with how she's phrased it, but I think the fundamental thing that is being spoken about here, which I think is correct, is that it is the expectations and the desire for certain reactions and a certain response to your vulnerability, that is actually the cause of the suffering or the discomfort, right? I don't think the vulnerability itself is necessarily the cause of discomfort. It's that if I go on a date with you, I expect you to reciprocate my vulnerability and to not laugh at my vulnerability and
1: to... I won't, it's okay. Thank you. (laughs)
0: uh, and, And to be really, you know, to meet my vulnerability. And if you don't meet that, that's... That's when I get really scared and you know upset, and, and that's when like it has gone
1: badly. But that's not an unreasonable expectation, right? Like I'm not going to have a second date with you if you didn't meet that. If sure. you did laugh at me,
0: it, it's not a practical, unreasonable expectation. But in when it, when you come to Buddhism, it's the fact that you're expecting anything is your desire. It's your craving for something, right? And it's this idea that expecting relationships to be comfortable is what makes them uncomfortable. Expecting expecting somebody to meet my vulnerability is what makes it uncomfortable when they don't meet my vulnerability right it's not the vulnerability inherently itself that is the discomfort it's the it's the expectation i have around what's going to happen with that vulnerability sure
1: but i mean like how do you how do you not get gaslighted in that situation and if you're not attached to how the other person responds to your
0: vulnerability well but but again that assumes that you are attached so yeah I, I'm gonna say this just in the realm of like things that are reasonable and things that are um, you know not uh, not harmful behaviors, right? But let's just say we go on a date and you know you just get laughed at. Yeah. Um, I I think it's the attachment to. Like, you, you don't get gaslit in that situation by not actually being attached to someone's reaction, right? If you laugh at – if I'm vulnerable to you and you laugh at me, but I fundamentally think think, think I'm a good person irrespective of if you laugh at me, you laughing at me has no impact on me, right? I just think you're an idiot. What are you doing laughing so at me? Like, why go on the date in the first place? Because I – well, but again, this, this, this goes to the thing, right? It's, it's inherently uncomfortable because – in order to go on a date in the first place, there's a level of expectation that I have to have, right? Sure. There's, there's, there's a level of expectation that I must have. And so, and again, this may be a good. This so, but this is a, that discomfort can't be avoided then. Yes, correct. That discomfort can't be avoided. Okay. Uh, and, and that's the first truth. You will feel the discomfort. Are, yes, relationships yeah. are uncomfortable. That's the first noble truth of love, right? That, yeah, it you will feel uncomfortable. It, it, it's just going to happen. And, you're, and even, you know, not in the first date example, if you've been married to someone for however long, you know, yeah, you, know, you expect them to to do the dishes when you've cooked for them, and they don't. And you know that's uncomfortable because your expectations don't. Like, yeah, the relationships inherently involve expectations. Therefore, that's they're going to be uncomfortable.
1: Yeah,
0: okay, All right. I'll, I'll, I'll roll with that. All right, cool. I'll roll with that cool. now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, so and, you know, and we've jumped ahead here, right? To the um, to the kind of the expecting relationships to be comfortable is what makes them uncomfortable. The second noble truth of love, uh, and the third one here is meeting the. Dis- well,
1: Yep. I, I just I want I want to dig into that a little a little more mm. because like again I don't I don't know that it's necessarily an unrealistic expectation that relationships be comfortable that you that you meet things together that you like I I guess like my my meta critique to mm. to jump ahead maybe a little bit here is is that the. The desire – so 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 far as I can tell, Buddhism and non-attachment says that the desire in and of itself is um, bad if you want to get enlightened, to, to put the sure. appropriate caveat on it. And Christianity would say, well, like, no, the, the desire is good. Like, mm-hmm. the desire is fine. The desire to be known by… another person the desire uh for your husband to do the washing up when you've made dinner or to make dinner like some nights of the week or whatever in in a relationship, like that's a that's a good desire and that's a a fine desire The, the problem is when you allow that desire to define you and when you when you want one person to meet all of the expectations and all of the needs that you have and and when you turn another person, as often happens in romantic relationships, but also happens with children and and whatever else, where where all of your where where you desire that person out of proportion to their ability to meet your desire, and and essentially it, you you make them god, mm-hmm. right? Like that, and so this is we're part of the. The Christian practical advice comes in is in the Ten Commandments, right? The first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. Like, you you shall not make your wife into a god because you're going to be putting a burden on your wife that she just is not going to meet because she can't meet all of your needs because she's a human being and she has needs of her own and, and everything else. And so it's not the desire for that intimacy and that comfort that is a bad thing, but it is the expectation that this person is going to be able to meet your desire unconditionally.
0: I have two lines of thought I want to go down, so I'm going to touch on one quickly and then will go to the next one. The first one is, why is that desire good? Because
1: inherent to our nature as human beings is a, a craving for relationship. We were, we were made to live in relationship with other people and with God. So That's so, just
0: that's how we're hardwired. That's so, the way it is. So the desire for connected relationship with people is good because it's the way God designed?
1: Essentially. Yeah. Okay. Like we, we could unpack that more. Sure, but yeah, essentially, yeah. I, yeah. I'll,
0: I'll take that. That's fine. The second one I find really interesting um, for personal reasons, but just in general, this idea that um, the expectation of one person being every single, you know, being God-like or you're kind of meeting all your needs, like, you know, um, I mean, does Christianity talk about that explicitly?
1: I couldn't, off the top of my head, give you chapter and verse mm. on that. Um, yeah, I I, sure. I I can't off but, the top but, of my but, head. But, sorry, but,
0: but your understanding
1: is Christian. That. Sorry, Christian theology talks about it heaps. Sure, um, whether scripture explicitly says that aside from it's sure. it's kind of an unpacking of you shall have no other gods before me
0: right so and so so just so i can understand that properly then is this idea that you you have i heard you correctly in saying that there, there's a kind of there's a christian way of thinking that says well you, having a single person in your life a single human being in your life that is expected to meet all of your needs is unfair and unrealistic to that human being
1: Yes, um, but you could even like crank it down a few levels and say having a human being in your life that you think is going to meet most of your needs sure. is is unfair and unrealistic on that person and the nature of the nature of sin that we we don't um, we don't live as we you know um, there's there's parts of us that just aren't, our minds don't work, our desires don't work the way that they're supposed to, right, um, is that we're going to want things that we shouldn't want, um, that, that aren't what we were, you know, created in intent, and but also that we're not going to be able to meet the needs in others that maybe we should be able to, sure.
0: right? So then, so to follow on from that then, if, if it's not, yeah, if, it, if it's unreasonable to expect one person to meet even most of your needs, how do you get your needs met then, right? So, I mean, so my interpretation of Christianity has always been that it has, at least in the traditional senses, and at least if you're not Mormon, led itself to this idea that, you know, you could only, re, you know, you're only really allowed to be married to one person or have one kind of primary romantic familiarly rooted relationship um, what I mean like doesn't that go against that to say well like you your your primary partner the person with which you are married under God that person shouldn't be expected to meet even most of your needs so then how does how does it then follow that you should you know what is the advice then to go and get your needs met
1: yeah, and I think apologies if I used the term needs before. I may have done. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's unhelpful. I think desires sure. is a better term. Okay. Um, because we we actually need a lot, on, on the one hand, a lot fewer things than we think we do. On the, on the other hand, in terms of intimacy and stuff, we probably need more mm-hmm. than we think we do. Um, but if, if we just take um, sex as an example, like... I mean, the, the the very existence of celibate, voluntarily celibate human beings tells us that we don't actually need sex. Sure. To the, and and so the what Christianity gets with then in um, monogamy and monogamous relationships, so just one man, one woman for life, is at, it's it's aimed at a taming of that desire for something that I want but I don't actually need and the pursuit of which can be and historically has been very harmful to other people. So um, if, if I feel like, if I have the desire for sex and my wife isn't in the mood, well, that's just, that's tough for me. I have to live with the disappointment of that. I don't need the sex. Sure. I, might, I might want it a lot in that moment, but I have to then, like I have to deal with, that and, and the world in which the New Testament is written, and this is why um, the Apostle Paul talks about this actually quite a lot, is because if you were a wealthy man and you felt like you wanted to have sex with something, you could have sex with a whole bunch of people. You, you've got slaves for that. You've got temple prostitutes. You've got whatever. Uh, and so part of what is happening with these you know, Greeks and Romans who've um, actually come to know God and know the intimacy that we have with God and therefore the the way that we're supposed to be intimate with other people is that they have to learn to moderate their desires and that they can't just have everything that they want when they want it because it turns out that that's harmful for their slaves and for temple prostitutes and, and so on.
0: So I I can agree with that point when it comes to sex, but I think this also goes beyond sex, right? Like I think... so. Absolutely. Well, I
1: don't need someone to cook all my meals for me. But, but I, I desire but, that sure, but, but that's so, but, a broken
0: but, desire but but I think what you're I think you may be stuck on no there's a wrong way of phrasing it I I think the I think this goes beyond just kind of desires of the flesh so to speak right like sure. you know, I I think I actually think this really deeply mostly applies to emotional and human relationship desires and Mm -hmm. needs right so i would say that we actually probably do need a level of emotional intimacy we do need a level of um relational intimacy we need uh people in our lives to fill roles that support us emotionally um and i guess for me what also follows not it's not just a comment on sex or on uh housework or on any of that but it's it's a comment on why is it fair to expect one person to meet all of those emotional needs? And I, and I, would, I would posit that those are much more closely aligned to needs than desires.
1: Well, and, and I would say that, it, it again, it's not just one person that meets all of those, we'll call them emotional needs. Like, it, it's not just one person that, that meets those. Like, so um, I've got friends that I watch European football with uh, I've got actually friends that just in the last couple of weeks I've been making homebrew with, which has been like a, sure it's a physical thing, but sure. it's a it's a like you know it's a it's a lovely bonding, wonderful thing that my wife is not the least bit interested in, um, and and so I have I have different conversations with my friends, and we have different emotional connections, and we talk about different than, than I talk about with my spouse. She doesn't need to be interested in everything that I'm interested in. That's not what monogamy is all about.
0: Yes, and, and I 100% agree with that. But I think maybe what I'm getting at is that I think, and this is probably an interpretational thing, right? This is probably where certain versions of Christianity go off script. Sure. But I think, it at least in society as it is today, a lot of justification for people who have very, not only physically monogamous relationships but emotionally monogamous relationships you you have terms like emotional cheating and like you know uh i think it's you know it's a fairly common thing for uh people in uh heterosexual relationships to be a little bit put off by their spouse of a different gender um having friends that are the same gender as they are you know so you know the the kind of the, the the common trope of like you know a guy getting jealous that his wife is really good mates with another guy right yep. like you know and and i think I I, so I I guess the point that i'm getting at there is i think that i agree with your statement that we have emotional and relational needs that extend way beyond our romantic uh our primary romantic relationship if we have one but i think Christianity is often used and Christian values are often used as a justification for a type of monogamy that seems to really desire to deeply restrict emotional and relational needs to a single person
1: and and I I would say that that is like that's just a misreading of Christianity sure, like um, a a distortion of it And, and like I mean to the and to, to the point that it's without specifics, it's difficult to say, but like it, it it's, it's not even Christian in some ways, right? Like so the, the example that you give where um, someone gets very uncomfortable when their partner has um, close friends of the opposite gender like that, that's um, there's a, there's an insecurity and a mistrust in that that has a misunderstanding that you can have close relationships that aren't romantic as it happens um or or also that um i'm I'm just reminded i was watching during the week or a couple of weeks ago sometime um the australian story on tim minchin the the comedian uh who wrote a song at, at one point a few years ago called i'll take lonely tonight Um, And and he and his wife talk about how she, how they both had to adapt to him being around the world at all these, you know, big pop star parties and whatever, and that people would hit on him and that he is a kind of flirty guy that enjoys that. And and I get that. And so for him to know where that line was and to be really clear in himself that he wasn't going to cross it, but also then for his wife to be really clear that he wasn't going to cross it and, and how they dealt with that together. Like that, that is, um, she's, she says here, um, meeting the discomfort together is love. That, that Like I, I think that is, that's meeting the discomfort together mm. um, and that's actually valuing and caring for the other person and putting their... Needs above your own with sensible boundaries in place, which is kind of what love is
0: in a lot of ways, isn't it? Well, yes, and I, I completely agree with that, right? And, and I think actually this is a really – this is another point of convergence, right, with Christianity and Buddhism, right? Um, You know, Buddhism is really, you know, at least as articulated in this article, it's very much around, you know, yeah, there is discomfort. Uh, the discomfort's caused by expectations, but if you actually can meet that discomfort together, if you can sit in that discomfort together in relationship – that is love. That is a um, you know that that is the way through uh, into love. Um, yeah, I based on what you've said, I think that actually does align really strongly with with the Christian concepts that you've spoken about. And you know, um, I don't know, I, I I hadn't really heard your Christian you know, the, the the take you talked talked about in Christianity around you know that one person can't meet everything. I I, I, I I'm quite I'm quite. Interested in that? Maybe we'll unpack that in the next episode a little bit.
1: And yeah, we probably will. But just to kind of maybe it's a teaser, maybe not. You'll find out when you listen to the next episode. But, but yeah. um, it, once we've recorded it. But um, that, like, well, there you know, God meets our our needs in various ways, mm. um, and the the problems arise when we make other humans, well, well other anything. Um, when we expect them to do something that only God can do. Um, yeah. And we, we could unpack more like how God does that and, and everything else. But we, we were created for deep intimacy. Mm. Um, and because human beings reflect God and are the image of God, we're able to give that to one another, but imperfectly.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's a really nice note to, to end this episode on, um, which... you know, Or it
1: would be if there wasn't a joke.
0: If It would be if there wasn't a <laughs> joke. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, uh, speaking of things we're created for, the Christian and Buddhist were created to, uh, to walk up to a bar. Uh, they, they don't actually go into the bar this time. They, they, this time they, uh, they, they stand outside the bar and they notice uh, Nasruddin. Nasruddin's there. Nasruddin is a Sufi, uh, a Sufi poet, a Sufi, a Sufi figure in, in the Sufi religion. And um, I, he appears in a lot of stories. He'll probably make a few appearances at, at this bar, I suspect. But, um, but Nasruddin is outside the bar on his hands and knees, like under a street light. Like he's and he's searching for something, right? And and the Christian, and the Buddhist, walk up to him and go, "Hey, like Nasrudin, like what's what's going on? You you looking for something? Like what what are you doing?" And Nasrudin's like, "Oh, I, I'm looking for my keys. I lost my keys." And they're like, "Oh, well, let let's help you. Like, where did you last where did you last have your keys? Oh, inside the bar somewhere." Uh, and they're like, "Well, why are you looking out here if you feel like you had lost him in the bar?" And Nezrudin said, "Oh, there's more light out here." <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, so yep. there's uh,
1: there's a, there's Rudin at the bar. Um, there's more work needed on the jokes. Oh, I think. Oh,
0: I, I, I feel sad. I, I, I feel love like
1: you, and as we said last episode, uh, your worth is not attached <laughs> to the jokes. <laughs> to the jokes.
0: Yes, uh, I, I'm glad it's not. Um, uh, well, that's that's all we have time for today. But thank you very much, Jacob, um, and thanks for being here. Uh, We'll be back next episode with a follow-up on some more Buddhist love, but in the meantime, you can email us at christianbuddhistbar at gmail.com.
1: You certainly can. Our music is by the wonderful Kevin MacLeod. We love it. We love you. We will see you next week. Do do doot
0: doot Do do doot Do Do Do